Took me a whole week to get out of my head the worship songs from last week. Now I've got to start all over again. It was well done, though. Thank you, Michael and worship team. We're privileged um, to have the worship we have here. I want to take you to Luke 19 this morning. And uh, Luke 19 is going to set up the story for us of, of um, why Palm Sunday is what it is. I'm going to help you understand a little bit better. Um, I want to get into that in just a minute. I want to pray with you, but before I do that, if you'll look in your bulletins this morning, you're going to see an insert page in there. Besides the notes for the message this morning, there's an insert in there, and it has a list of all kinds of opportunities, ways that you can plug in to activities here in the life of the church. If you're new here and you feel like you're not getting to know anyone, there's a great opportunity for you by plugging into serving, things that you can do to serve here in the life of the church. So just let me give you a heads up on this. Um, last weekend, there's about 600 people here, and we put that same insert in the bulletin, and it went out to everyone. And then Monday morning, um, receptionists were, and secretaries were looking through the brochures to see how many we got back, and we got two back out of 600, so I'm not heaping coals of fire on your head, all right? Just want you to hear me. If you have some margin in your life, if you have some, some white space, you've got some areas where you've got time, and you have a... a match for things that you see on the list that you could do to help out with the church, we could use your help. We, we need people to help serve. In light of that, coming up next weekend, obviously, with Easter and Good Friday, Good Friday service at 7 o'clock, and then the Easter services, is, there's a lot of opportunities to plug in and help. And by the way, if you're coming next weekend, you're in town, you're not going away for spring break, get here early to get a seat, okay? Just make sure, just a heads up. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay, I want to pray with you, and then we'll step into this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. It's undeniable. And we are submitting ourselves to you, asking that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Indeed, be the one that seals these things in our hearts so that we don't forget them. So help us, Father, to grasp and understand in in ways that we can't do on our own, but will happen through you and through your leading in our life. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen. I don't know if you've ever thought about God being the God of emotion, but we were designed in God's image. In the likeness of God, we were made, and we are an emotional people. God is the God of emotion also. It's just that he keeps his emotions in check. God's never emotionally out of control, but we can have moments like that. We're going to see some of this emotion of God coming out of this passage this morning. Now, we're going to have multiple views There's Mark's view, there's John's view, there's Matthew's view, and Luke's view. They all are looking at this as though they're at an accident scene standing on opposite corners. They all have a view of this story this morning. Primarily, we're going to lean into Luke, but you might also want to stick your finger in in John chapter 12 if you have a Bible with you this morning. If you didn't bring one, then you're going to find them in the seats around you. And, And if you don't own a Bible, we've got three Bibles in the back. Grab one when you leave this morning. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. It's our gift to you. So if you're a first century follower of Jesus, if you're living at the period of time when this was written down, you're watching some amazing things going on. If you're a first century follower of Jesus, all the warning lights on the dash are going off because you're seeing prophecy fulfilled before your very eyes. You're watching majesty and power and absolute control combined with intrigue and mystery 
and things that Jesus is saying that no one has ever said before. Yet contrasted with that is this anchor verse we have this morning from Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And it says, that very word you see on the screen, that when Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem, He cried. We want to understand what's going on behind that weeping if we're going to understand God. And that's part of why we're examining the passage that we are this morning, to know God better. How you interpret this moment, this particular emotion that you're looking at, has a great deal to do with how you view God this morning. It has a great deal to do with how you believe God views you. There's a lot going on in this particular emotion because Jesus' tears here are an evaluation of reality. Our tears at times can be based on things like the Hallmark Channel. We, we can be moved emotionally very easily up and down. God is moved in a far different way, and so we want to understand what's going on here. What is He feeling and sensing? Are these tears of joy? Are these tears of victory? Are these tears of fear? Well, we'll understand that as we go forward. So not asking any more questions, let's just jump into the narrative. Here's the background. When we open up this story, we find that Jesus has recently been at a dinner party. I don't know if that messes with your head or not at all, but the, the night before this event, Jesus has been hanging out at Lazarus' house with Mary and Martha, Lazarus's two sisters. And they're there for a particular reason. People came to this dinner party, literally it looks like in Scripture, by the hundreds, because they were intrigued with what had just happened. See, everybody thought they were going to a funeral. And when they show up for the funeral, there's no funeral because Jesus has resurrected Lazarus from the dead, literally called him out of the tomb. And so people are showing up to see the dead guy. Many Jews are coming from around Jerusalem because Mary and Martha are fairly prominent in the community. And they're showing up to console them but they find they don't need to because there is no funeral. So word spread very, very quickly and people began coming to their home. We see this in John chapter 12. Here's one of those angle views. John chapter 12, verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So you can imagine the emotions of the people are running at an all-time high. Messianic hopes are off the chart because they're living under the boot of Rome and it's not a pretty place to be. They're living with oppression. Taxation alone is strangling them. And so Messianic hopes are really, really high. Combined with that, it's Passover week. People are coming in town to be part of Passover celebration. And we don't know a lot of detail about how many people showed up in Jerusalem in 33 AD, but we get some indication how many people came to the capital city at this period of time by looking at what historians wrote in 40 AD, seven years after this. We're told that 240,000 lambs were killed at Passover in 40 AD. One lamb was killed for every 10 people. 2.4 million people in 40 AD were in Jerusalem, the capital city. Now that's remarkable because the capital city's normal population at that period of time, 160,000 people. So you can see it swelled, there was energy, there's a lot of people coming in town. This is kind of like being in Syracuse for the Sweet 16. A lot of energy in the community, people know there's something special going on. Can you imagine the excitement? People are showing up on Sunday for what they know is coming on Friday. That's like showing up to church 15 minutes early. <laughs> 
I know, it'll never happen in some of your lives, right? But that's what's going on here. People are so excited about this. There's preparation. There's advancement. People feel the energy. And so what is joy for the crowd is absolute crisis for the enemies of Jesus because their worst fears are realized. They've not only seen Jesus healing people, but now there's dead people walking around whom Jesus has resurrected. And everything they were afraid of, this growing popularity of this one, is now right before their eyes. So they decide, we've got to do something about this. Because of the resurrection of Lazarus, they decided to kill Jesus. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen and you'll see John 11, his view of this. He says, if we let him, this is the Pharisees talking, the leaders. John writes, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's the leaders of Israel. They're strategizing. What are we going to do about Jesus? So they come up with a plan. They decide they're going to seize him and kill him, but they don't want to do it during Passover week because Jesus is too popular. There's too many people in town who like him. So we get this view from Matthew. Matthew says this in chapter 26. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they were saying not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. But how cool is this that regardless of Satan's plans, church, God's plans always rule, right? God's plans always rule. So regardless of what they were plotting, God said, Jesus will become the sacrifice for the world at Passover. That's how God's plans were to play out. So all eyes are watching. Everyone's wondering. And literally, I'm talking about by the hundreds of thousands are wondering, is Jesus going to appear in Jerusalem in the capital city at this period of time, even though the leaders are watching for him? Let's move forward into the passage. You've turned to Luke 19, and let's go into verse 29. It says this, When he, meaning Jesus, approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. I'm going to circle back around to the content of what's going on there in just a minute. But here's what's really clear. Jesus is not saying, go get me a super stretch white limousine that's bulletproof. He's choosing something very humble here. I want to explain that to you in just a moment. But what we also see him doing is he's giving a password. You'll see the password being used in the next section. Go with me to the next part, verse 32. So those who were sent away went away, found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now John gives us another angle to this. He lets us understand that what's going on here happens the next day. John 12, it says this. The next day, John 12, 12, the large crowd who had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Who's the large crowd that come to the feast? That's the vacationers. Everybody who's coming in town for spring break to Passover. And the next day is the day after the dinner party. Party that was the night before, they're all showing up because they begin hearing, Jesus is coming. Now, who's there? I'm guessing Lazarus is there because if you're like the dead guy that Jesus just took out of the tomb, you're sticking with Jesus, right? You're going to be pretty close to him. So I'm thinking Lazarus is there. I I believe all the disciples are there. 
and all the Marys are there. I don't know if you've looked, but there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament, and they're all followers of Jesus. So we've got all that individual people that are mentioned, and then we've got some groups. The groups that are mentioned here, the, the Passover crowd, that's the vacationers, and then we've got those who were traveling with Jesus, which apparently is a pretty big crowd also, who watched this thing go on with Lazarus literally coming out of the tomb. But then there's the other group, the residents of Jerusalem, which is about 160,000 people. And all of these individuals come together. And here's the remarkable thing. Jesus knew. He knew that the appearance of these crowds and the celebration of these people would infuriate the leaders of Jerusalem, that they would be furious with what was going on. So you need to read into this that this action here that you're watching is deliberate and it's dramatic on the part of Jesus to declare, I am the one, as you're going to see this story unfold. So when John 12 says they heard Jesus is coming, they're literally pouring out of the streets. Starbucks is empty. Nobody's hanging out there. They want to go see Jesus. So the streets of Jerusalem become empty, and these great waves of humanity flood up the Mount of Olives to where Jesus is at as he begins descending into Jerusalem. Go forward with me into verse 36. Chapter 19 says this, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Today we have a phrase which royalty is welcomed by. We even do it at airports when leaders of state get off from their airplane and we roll out a red carpet in front of them. This is where this comes from. Individuals taking off their garments, laying it down in the street so that the dignitary or the king could literally walk on their clothing to, to say in submission, we're putting ourselves under you. We're in submission to you. So that's what they're doing to Jesus. They're literally putting themselves in a kingly way under him. But we associate this particular day with something called Palm Sunday. Well, that's something that the church latched onto many, many years later because of the next verse I want to show you, individuals laying palm branches in the street. It says this in Mark 11, they spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. You go to Jerusalem today, you're going to see palm trees all over the place, just like in the first century. They ran out and got these flags. Literally, they're using them as flags to wave and lay them in the street. So that's where the phrase Palm Sunday comes from, but more accurately we should call it the triumphal entry because that's what really is going on here. Verse 37 says this, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When you look at that passage and look at it closely, you see a word missing. What word are they not saying here in Luke's version? You just sang it this morning. Hosanna. That's right. We just declared that. Well, John actually gives us an understanding that that's a word that they used in this moment. He says in verse 13, they began to shout Hosanna along with saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. John says, hey, don't miss this. They use the word Hosanna. What is that word? Oh, it's a Hebrew word that actually means the same thing in the Greek language. It means save us, save us now. So they're beginning to shout this phrase that's unique to the Jewish people, speaking the Hebrew language, Hosanna, save us. It's a plea for action. Where does that come from? It's from the Hillel. And the Hillel goes back a thousand years before Jesus to the time of King David. 
when King David wrote Psalm 118, something that was very familiar to individuals. This is where it actually comes from, Psalm 118, verse 25, save now, the word Hosanna, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is like you singing the Star-Spangled Banner. We go to sporting events, we stand up in stadiums, we go to assemblies, and as a crowd, the nation of people stand up and begin chanting together a national anthem. This is their national anthem to the degree that they begin crying it out, recognizing there's something very, very remarkable about this moment. So they're swept up into this frenzy, chanting this phrase, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if your guy has just raised a guy from the dead, you got some degree of confidence going on, right? So there's some confidence here that regardless of the fact that you're under the boot of Rome and that there's military strength surrounding you, and I'm thinking soldiers even watching this event, regardless of all of that, you're going to have some confidence. It's going to be like, no fear. Our guy can raise people from the dead. What have we got to fear? Our God is more powerful. Now they take a giant step. According to what John says, they don't stop with saying Hosanna. John 12 says they take one giant step forward and look with me at the next verse when they begin to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. King. Now if Herod is your king and Caesar is your emperor and you're declaring someone else to be your king and you live under a monarchy... There's some dangerous words being shared out there on that roadside by hundreds of thousands of people. This massive group has just taken a giant step forward and they're shouting in loud voices and you can't blame them. What have they seen? We've talked about this even through the book of Acts. Seeing lepers healed. Modern day equivalent, 2015, somebody's got AIDS, it's an incurable disease. Leprosy was an incurable disease in the first century. Jesus is healing people with incurable diseases. The blind can see sunsets. The deaf can hear children's laughter. Jesus stops weather. He can control storms. He makes food. He can feed thousands of people. And now there's dead people walking, not like zombies, but completely restored, healed. This is a remarkable situation. So they're knowing Jesus is marching towards the capital. So the cheers begin. Jesus for president. Because this is like he's going to Washington, D.C. He's going to the capital city. The capital city is Jerusalem. So no wonder they start saying, Jesus for king. Because they know nothing can stop him. To the masses, the arrival of Jesus in this moment means one thing. He's ready for action. Now, let's circle back to the concept of Jesus getting on a colt. Because Luke's view was he got on a colt, and that's all we're told, something very humble. But we get another view from John. John 12 says this, verse 14, Jesus finding a young donkey. So it's not just a colt, it's a donkey, a young colt. And he sat on it, as it is written. Verse 15, Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Why is that significant? 
In the Middle East, even today, the donkey is not something that's revered as being despised. It's noble. The donkey is regarded as something that, yes, it is a beast of burden, but it served a purpose when it came to monarchs. If a ruling authority or a king was coming into his region or his realm, if he already had conquered the city and he was the victor, he would get upon a donkey because he was coming in a form of peace. If he was coming in as the conqueror, the one who would take them on in battle, he would ride a white horse. But Jesus is not on a white horse. He's not on a war horse here. He rides a donkey. If you look forward in time to Revelation chapter 19, you see at the second coming when Jesus returns, John wrote this, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. A very interesting transition there. A white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages what, church? War. So in the future, when Jesus comes, he comes on a war horse. But here, he comes in peace. The first coming, he's a king of peace. Matter of fact, that matches with what was written by the ancient prophets 500 years earlier. Look with me up on the screen. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. That word too is very important. He's not coming against you. He's not coming to lay siege to you. He's coming to you. And how is he coming to you? He comes to you just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years before Jesus did this. Uh, we've got a few minutes here, so I'm going to rabbit trail you for just a minute because I, I know the game doesn't start until 2.20 today. So <laughs> just bear with me, okay? It's only take five minutes and I'll get you out of here in time, I promise. But I, I did this with each of the past two services. I'm going to do it here because it really helps you to understand what's going on here. Uh, I just want you to think for a moment of days before Jesus. Back up in your mind 500 years to the time of a prophet by the name of Daniel who was in captivity in what we call today Iran. He had been part of the Jerusalem remnant who had been hauled away to Babylon, literally in captivity. And because he was so concerned about what was going to happen to his nation, which had been destroyed by the Persians, that he went before God. And in a period of time of what looks like to be three weeks of prayer and fasting, God finally responded to him at the end of three weeks by sending to him the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel brought some information to Daniel to let him know that he could share this with all the people. It's actually written in your Bible. When they could, on a calendar date, expect the arrival of the anointed one, meaning Jesus. And so what I want to show you is what the angel said to Daniel. It comes from Daniel chapter 9. And this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. And he said this, Know and understand this, Daniel, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Let me explain that to you very quickly. He's giving him a mathematical formula because Jerusalem had been destroyed and Daniel was concerned that the city be rebuilt. And so the, the king, Artaxerxes, who was in power over Persia at that time, was going to issue a decree according to what God said. So let's see the next slide. The end of the 69 sevens is 483 years. So go to the next slide. Artaxerxes I, he ruled 
over Persia in 457 B.C. He issued a decree in 457 B.C. that Ezra and the Israelites could go back and rebuild the city. So that's what the angel was just talking about. So you have to take the 69 seven, 69 times 7, 483 years forward in time. He said, Daniel, you can expect in 483 years the anointed one will arrive. Jesus arrived in a public way, A.D. 27, exactly 483 years to the date when Jesus began his ministry, crucified in 30 A.D., but began publicly in A.D. 27. Is our God a God of detail and order or what? So we take that and we understand What's going on here? This prophecy that's being fulfilled before their very eyes, this huge crowd who has come for a religious celebration that knows the word of God, they understand all the pieces are coming together. So no wonder they're escorting Jesus. No wonder the cheering is deafening. And in this moment, the officials on the field blow a whistle. They throw down a penalty flag saying, this should not be happening. Jesus, silence your disciples. Look at what they say. Luke 19.39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Personal foul, unsportsmanlike conduct. We want you to stop this. The Pharisees are infuriated. And Jesus has this response. (laughs) If they're quiet, the stones are going to scream out. And I, I want you to hear me on this. There's a reason for why he said that. I'm going to ask for three volunteers right now to read three different verses from the Bible for me. I'm just going to throw it out there, and I just need you to put your hand up if you're willing to read it. I need somebody to read Colossians 1.16. Somebody willing to take that? Just that one verse. Don't everybody jump on it at once. Okay, Kristen's got it. Colossians 1.16. Here's the second one. Romans 11.36. Somebody willing to take that? Jerry's going to read that. Romans 11.36, Jerry. And John 1.3. Somebody's going to take that? Okay, one more. Denise is going to have that. Okay, so John 1, 3, Romans eleven thirty six, and Colossians 1, 16, because we want to understand what's going on here. So while you three people look up those verses, just hold them for a minute. I'm going to have you read them good and loud. Here's what Jesus' response is. Everybody else look at this. Verse 40, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these stones, if these, if these people, I'm sorry, if these become silent, meaning his disciples, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now here's the implication behind this. He's literally saying to the Pharisees, a bag of rocks are smarter than you guys. These stones here on the street can see who I am. They will scream out if these disciples stop. The rocks have more intelligence. They can speak of who I am. If they withhold, they're being disloyal to who I am. Telling us, church, that you and I, this morning, we are bound to profess him as king. That's that's why we sing so loudly here. We're bound to do that. Our world today needs more than ever to have attention drawn to Jesus Christ. It needs it desperately. But why rocks screaming? Not how. That's up to God alone. I've made rocks scream before. Maybe you have too. You stick them in a fire and you let them get really, 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 really hot and then dunk them in cold water. They'll scream. They they make a sound. But that's not the kind of screaming Jesus is talking about here. At least I don't think it is. There's a reason why. Not how, but why. So let's go to Scripture. First of all, who's got Romans 11.36? 
Was that you, Jerry? Will you stand up and read that real loud? Excellent. Okay, who had John 1 3? Denise, real loud. Without him was not one thing made that has come to be made. Okay, here's the last one. Kristen's got that. Real loud, Kristen, your big outdoor voice. Everything by him, for him, to him. Church, all of creation belongs to him. No wonder the rocks that are laying on the street alone can praise him. Because we're told in Revelation that in the last day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Those things that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, Scripture even says, even those things that are in the sea, meaning the octopus and the fish, can praise Jesus. So rocks can do it. The Pharisees are just too blind to see that everything was created by him, for him, and to him. You and I exist for the praise and the glory of Jesus. And if we refuse, God will make rocks praise him. He can even take hearts of stone and turn them to praise him. So because of the frenzy, the politicians begin turning on each other because when you go to this passage, you see they begin pointing fingers at each other because they're losing control. They've been monitoring the polls in Jesus' favor of a... Okay, they really like him. It's going way up. Okay, it's up at the very, very top. John twelve nineteen says this. So the Pharisees said to one another, the world has gone after him. Matter of fact, if you read verse 19, it actually says, you're doing no good. Look at what you're trying to do. It actually is not working. The world has gone after him. They're losing it. They're out of control. Their emotions are going off the charts. Now, in this frenzy, it can cause you to miss the obvious because it looks like celebration is finally getting its due. And what you'll miss is Jesus begins weeping. In this moment, when it seems like it should be joy, he begins crying, the God of emotion. Now understand this road from Jericho where this whole journey started to Jerusalem is about 17 miles long. It's a 3,000 foot ascent to get there. And by the time you get to the crest of the hill where Jesus is at in this moment, on the top of the Mount of Olives, it's a, a, a 300 foot elevation above the top of the temple. So he's got a spectacular view of the entire metro area. He's looking out over this huge crowd, but he sees the city beyond them. And he's got this view that causes him to begin weeping. So when you crest the hill, you found God crying. It says this in Luke 19.41, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. How you interpret that emotion has a great deal to do this morning with your view of God. His tears reveal much about what He feels toward you, toward us. And by that I mean all of humanity. This entire population on this planet 
is being viewed through those tears. Jesus' tears are an evaluation of the real situation. Can you identify the emotion? Are they tears of joy, first of all? No. You would think so. If you're looking at it through worldly eyes, you're going to say, wow, he really likes the situation. People like him a lot. Look at how happy he is. He's even crying. Are, are they tears of fear? No. He said, what's about to come? I got total control over it. I lay down my life willingly. No one takes it from me. He knows what's coming. But that's not tears of fear. See, God is not acting here according to man's ways. He never does. There's always an alternate purpose for why he does what he does. So if you're a disciple in the first century at this moment in time, from your viewpoint, you're trying to grasp what's going on here. A strange contradiction in activity. Everybody's cheering you, Jesus. If you're at the crash scene and you're standing on four corners and you're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're trying to understand why is this going the way it is? John actually said in the end of the book of John, he said, we looked back on this and now we get it. But in that moment, it didn't make any sense to us. We couldn't understand why was this unfolding the way it was unfolding. But after his glorification, after he was risen from the dead, then it made sense to them. But here, it's really strange. Here's why. God and God alone can bring together things which seem like they're completely opposite. Now, follow me on this. Our God is sovereign, and his majesty will not be denied. His glory will not be denied. So you see here in this moment a God of power and a God of control who's willing to say, go ahead. Cheer for me because I deserve it. Even the rocks will cheer for me. At the same time, combined with tender, loving mercy. And I don't mean to put them on one scale, one lower than the other. They're on an equal plane. God is 100% of everything. So where you find joy, love, authority, power, you find tender, mercy, compassion beyond anything that we can possibly know. Where on our planet, and I mean planet Earth, where on our planet do you find any combination of those things in one person? Strength and power with immeasurable compassion. See, this is why Jesus is peerless. If, if you're looking for evidence that Jesus is God, it's right here. This is what a God-man should look like. Filled with compassion but understanding I am totally worthy of the glory you're giving me. It's right there. So how do you define this? Coming into the home stretch here. You have to stop and think, how does this speak to my life? Understand in this moment, Jesus is reaching beyond the realm of our world. He's, he's reaching into things that belong to God alone. Only God knows the future. Only God reveals the future. And Jesus is reaching into the future. And he sees, as you're about to see in the next verse, he has foreknowledge. He sees hell approaching. And he understands what's about to happen to these people because of this shallow reception that they're bringing before him. He knows within a generation, Israel will be obliterated. I don't know if you know this, historically, 70 AD, the nation of Israel was destroyed because of the rejection of Jesus. These tears that you see here are about people. 
He's not looking out at the buildings. It's the people inside the buildings. They've had their opportunity, and they totally are missing God in this moment. So look what Jesus says while he's crying. Verse 42, he's weeping, and he says this, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus is saying, I came, I'm here, and you did not receive me. And you might be looking at this saying, wait, Mark, you just showed us that they received him. This is a huge celebration. It looks like all of Israel has poured out for this. I want you to hear this. What appears to be a reception in reality is the seeds of rejection because Jesus does not fulfill their desires. And their desire is that he would overthrow Rome, that this would be a political movement. Go with me to what he says next. You want to see why Islam says Jesus is a great prophet? This is one of the reasons, this verse right here, verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Amazing detail fulfilled to the letter in A.D. 70 when General Titus came from Rome and brought the imperial soldiers of Rome against Israel and they said we have had enough of this nation and they destroyed them literally Titus the general gave an order to his soldiers do not burn the temple we want to preserve it it's considered one of the great wonders of the world but the soldiers didn't listen in a frenzy of the attack and killing all the people killing 600,000 Jews they burned the temple along with that they burned the treasury And when they burned the treasury, all the gold melted and all the gold ran down into the cracks of the stones. So the soldiers got out their swords and their pry bars and they began ripping the stones apart, literally leaving not one stone upon another. Jesus' words fulfilled. He's looking out over this city who's working their own agenda. They're cheering Jesus on. He's our deliverer. He's going to throw out Rome. He's going to take victory for us. But he's coming as a king of peace on a donkey. War is not now. He's coming for another reason. So he says in the closing verse why this happened. It says this, verse 44, part B, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They wanted a God of their own design. They want a God who meets their demands. The story is really clear. Jesus is not a Messiah who offers peace with the world. He's the Messiah who offers peace with God, which is infinitely greater, church. It's nothing to do with the world or the political system. It's all about relationship with God. You want the world and everything to be at peace around you? Get your relationship right with God first. Most people want a designer Jesus. One that's going to fit their own agenda. And they will not bow their knee to a king who does not meet that expectation. Today, very pluralistic society that we live in where many people believe that all paths lead to God. Well, Jesus is totally cool. He's very cool today as long as he meets our interpretation of God. But when Jesus does not deliver on man's terms, they reject him. So when Jesus' words become uncomfortable, especially about issues of sin, they curse him. 
That's a pluralistic society. He's God as long as I want him to fit into my mold. So how does this speak to us today before we go out these doors? As always, we need to measure ourselves against a passage like this. As a very important passage that speaks into our life because God holds a really high bar for his church. And if we're a maturing believer, we're going to be growing all the time in Christ-likeness, striving for that. So I have a question for you. How did Jesus respond to them not responding to him? He knew about the shallow reception. He knew that the hundreds of thousands had poured out to cheer him on because they thought, finally, our Messiah has come. He knew five days later, they're going to be the same crowd that's saying, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. This is a shallow reception. So how does Jesus respond to them not responding to him? This is really hard for me. I bet it is for you too. He responds to them with compassion. He cries over the city because they missed it. Jesus is right there. See, God doesn't kick them. He responds with compassion saying, you you had all the signs, all the prophecies, all the miracles, everything is right there and you missed it. You don't want to miss this opportunity. So what has he called us to do, church? To embody that exact same kind of compassion. You engage with somebody at work this week? Invite them to church and they turn you down? You engage with somebody at school or maybe in the mall and say, hey, haven't seen you in a while. I'd love to have you attend church with me next week, Easter week. It's an easy invitation. They say no. You don't walk away and reject them. Just begin praying for them because our God weeps over situations like that when people are separated from him. And if that's you this morning, If you're here this morning and you're just kind of checking things out, you're not in a relationship with Jesus yet, I want to speak to you directly for just a moment. If you're in this seeking mode, you're trying to figure out what this means to have a relationship with God, I want you to know this first of all. He is inspecting your heart right now. He's very clear about that. When His Word is revealed and you pay attention to things like this, He's looking at you to see how you respond. And in those moments, God says it's a warning. Do not resist the Spirit. Don't keep shutting him off. But here's what I want you to hear me on. If God cries for you, if he cries for you because you're not in relationship with him, know that those tears surge from deep within. It's not some casual emotional thing. It comes from his very core. And here's why he cries. Because the effects of sin are destroying your life from what it can be. God wants you into relationship. He invites you and he desires for that to be the case for you. So when you see God crying, I want you to understand, God's tears, they do not reflect hopeless despair. He doesn't cry like humans cry. He cries out of compassion. He doesn't cry out of despair because there is deliverance available. It's in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you need to hear that this morning. If if you've never surrendered to Jesus, this is your day. You can do it. He can give you a brand new beginning. Separate your sins as far as the east are from the west. He'll give you a brand new start. That's what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So if you've never dealt with that in your life, come talk to me after the service. I'd be honored to talk with you about what that means.
Now, that's for those who are checking this out, but for church people, and I think the majority of you are here because you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, I wanna send you out on what can be a very high note for you because I know some of this has been pretty hard, but I, I wanna close it out in a way that helps you understand this God of emotion. So if you're a believer this morning, hear this. If God cries for those, stop putting your car keys away, all right? Just hear me on this. It's really important. If God cries for those who are lost, know the opposite is true if you are a believer in Jesus this morning. No matter how many times you have failed, no matter how much sin seems to constantly keep dragging you down, no matter how many mistakes you feel like you've made, God has an opposite emotion for you. And I want you to see that this morning. Look with me up on the screen. Zephaniah 3.17, really, really ancient text. He said this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's your God. God sings over you. The word exalt in the Hebrew language is the word gil, and it means to spin. And I don't mean to imply that God's breakdancing in heaven, okay? But there's that much joy. He exalts over you, not just with singing, church, with loud singing. Why? Because you are in relationship with him. You belong to him. You are a child of God. He sings over you. When I think of that, I think of my mom singing lullabies. She had a horrible voice. But there was something about hearing her sing. It was familial. God sings loud, so I'm not thinking it's not a lullaby. But he praises over us in that relationship. So if he's doing that, there's got to be a reason why. What Jesus said very specifically in Luke 15, when a sinner repents, there is joy before the angels of God in heaven. Meaning the party starts at the moment you begin that relationship and God continues it on. He's singing over us. What a cool verse to take with yourself out the door this morning. So when the game ends today, when mealtime is gone, maybe when you're laying on your pillow tonight, remember how much your God treasures you. He sings over you. So here's the truth. I've said it in every service so far. The greater metro area of Lansing is connected by every relationship in our church. We all know somebody who knows somebody. Chances are really good that many of you sitting here today know people who don't have a relationship with God. You know people who have no church home. You got a prime opportunity this week. It's Easter. Everybody wants to be invited to church on Easter. Matter of fact, a poll in the United States says that the average person who doesn't go to church is only waiting for somebody to invite them. They would go if somebody would ask them. So it's on you, right? Let's pray about that and the truth that we've heard this morning about who our God is to us. Would you join me in that? Father, I praise you for the opportunity to look into your word and, and study these things that were written so long ago that are as true today as they were then. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we willingly recognize that you have the capacity, just like you did then, to turn hearts of stone towards yourself. So we want to offer that up to you first, that whomever will be coming in the door over Easter weekend, 
that if there's even a heart of stone, that you will begin working on it now to draw that individual, perhaps individuals, only you know what's in store, that you will draw people into relationship with you because of what Jesus did for us. I pray for this church right now, for these individuals in this auditorium who are going out the door, that these things will not quickly escape their attention. Father, that you would seal this in our hearts and that we would carry it through us without the week. Even when we hit Wednesday and Thursday, especially Friday, remind us of the great lengths you go to to bring us into relationship. Father, we praise you in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen.